0: Did it it ever feel like home for you over there? I imagine it did. Completely.
1: Completely. I mean, I've made the mistake over the last week or so saying home and that's there, you know, when we're back home. um, It felt the last house we had, I felt very comfortable. It was very homely. It had spaces for us all to go to our own space and work or meditate or do whatever you want to do. Um, Wonderful views of the lake. Um, It was a very big house. It was a three-story house. So it was easy to escape from each other. Um, At night I could go downstairs and practice my steel guitar and make noise and not bother anybody, you know? So that become, you know what that's like. Home is where your pillow is kind of thing. And when your pillow is there for so long, and it was a kind of house that just made you feel good when you're in it. So when COVID hit, It wasn't, I was already working from home, so it wasn't like I was changing anything. (laughs) I just had to put a mask on if I went to the store, you know. Um,
0: Obviously, I like people here and musicians here and everything. Nashville's got that um, aura about it of being this special, amazing place and everything else. And It's not a very big city, is it? Um,
1: I think it's going to become another Atlanta. There's so many people moving there, but... I mean, it's when we first got there, it felt more like a country town. Brisbane felt like it was really being, you know, getting very congested with traffic. And I actually, one of the frustrations I remembered before I left, <clears throat> I was actually on my mobile phone uh, going to a gig, ringing your wife actually saying, hey, I'm late to this gig. I'm, I'm caught in traffic. And then I got booked on my mobile phone. Oh. And I was thinking when I left, damn, you know, this is just getting crazy. You can't do anything on the road here. And then I got there, and it was completely relaxed. I drove around that city for thirteen years with never getting any speeding, parking fine at all. Yeah, right. It's funny. So they're very lax on some things. So, uh, and other things, obviously, they're not. You know? Yeah.
0: And what about so, the recent all the turmoil lately? How was that? How was? How did that affect you and the family? Like, did it? Well, it affect- we,
1: it actually did spread out in some areas close to us when the rioting was happening and obviously we could hear things and there was a lot of gunshots going on and um, but and they did try to burn down the capitol building and all that kind of craziness Uh, so i think we were far we were 30 minutes from the downtown area Um, our son was technically just to the right of downtown so he saw a lot. He saw a lot with the tornado. He woke up in the morning after that. So basically it started a tornado, COVID-19, Black Lives Matter rioting back to COVID-19. So Ben Ben uh, woke up, opened his curtains, and there was a car in the third floor of the building across from him, and he slept through the whole tornado. <laughs>
0: Gee.
1: And then realised nice. that he had no power, and then him and his fiance moved in with us then for the next... So many months. They moved in and then they, because he had no power for a few days, and then they came back. The whole three months of shutdown.
0: We, we had we, we had the um, earthquake in '94, Northridge earthquake, and that was where some freeways fell down, shopping centers fell down, and there were about eighty people killed, I think, in LA. But was, and there's a yeah. big earthquake and scared the hell out of us. But when we first got there, I slipped through the first earthquake we had. I like, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, a little one. I got
1: we too. You know, we um. <laughs> We had um, uh, someone letting a shotgun off down our our main street. Just we were on the corner of a main street in a cove, mm. and uh, my oldest daughter come to stay with us a couple of Christmases ago, and she thought we were playing tricks on her, shooting a gun off out the window to scare her. <laughs> it was actually a real gun. <laughs> well, that, that
0: was that was one of the things that brought us home. We just didn't. We never felt comfortable in LA with the whole gun culture thing and I mean we 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 lived in a bit of a redneck area in LA at the time we're down near Redondo Beach it was sort of a little bit off the the highway and you, you know and it was kind of um Kind of fairly safe around there, but we had a cop shot just up the road from us. And, and yeah, you'd be driving home from the studio at three or four in the morning and you'd, you know, you'd always see cops with people lined up against the wall and guns out and this stuff. Yeah,
1: that freaked me out. Yeah, I didn't see much of that. And we lived in a, a very nice neighborhood. The houses at the end of our street were more expensive as our, our house, but, you know, they wanted them to solve well over a million dollars. So it was, it was on the water, very classy, nice homes. There's three got a coves in a row with very kind of some, you know, a lot of music people. Um, Garth Brooks's label manager for Pearl lived in the next street. Um, Lizzie Hale and Joe from Hailstorm, the famous rock band. Um, So there's a few music folks. Um, Larry Carlton, um, we bought a house out there on the lake. Um, So I never really felt threatened. I mean, my my neighbours would shoot a beaver or shoot something themselves alone, you know. Um, But they were kind of, we were the youngest in the street, so that'll tell you. Well,
0: well, I think that's where LA was different back then anyway because it was real gang culture then and you had the buds and the crickets going on. And you'd be sitting in the shopping centre and, yeah, school kids would walk by. And because the school kids were all kind of in the gangs and they were wearing the loose clothing, you'd always be watching them. I remember sitting back home when we came home, sitting at Stafford Shopping Centre. And I was what these school kids are walking by and I was just keeping my eye on them and recording my eye and, and just like, mate, we're back here now. <laughs> you don't have to do that here. Yeah, exactly. The other thing was You're carjacking. pull
1: a in trousers.
0: Yeah. You know, yeah. <laughs> carjacking was big over there then too. So every time you turn up to the setup, you know, pull up at a red light, you'd always make sure your windows were up, your doors were locked. You'd look around <laughs> <your way. laughs> You did back back here, and it'd be like you just felt like stupid doing it. But uh, so yeah, there, there's there was good things for getting home. But but mates, it's really good that um you know I'm, I'm obviously as a, a, a mate I'm I'm glad you're back here, and um you got all that wealth of we've all got that wealth of knowledge and skills and everything to tap into, mate, that you you learnt over there. So what did your what was your musical journey over there? What what was your career? What'd you do?
1: Well, in the I think you know leaving here um, at that point in my career. You know, I was making, as you know, a lot of records for people in the country music industry and um, getting sort of poached out of that and then running, having the producer's skills and the musician's skills and the publishing concepts. Um, I think, you know, the typical Aussie, I thought I knew everything uh, until I got there and knew nothing, you know. So it took me some time to then re to the American Uh, system you know having multiple performing rights organizations and and then understanding how they all interact with with the writers and so I was a I did music publishing and the demos for the publishing company Uh, for the first few years uh, we built the catalogs um, and that was kind of fun a lot of songwriting so that was fun Um, my wife did a bunch of songwriting too and then as you know my son then developed into a a musician, songwriter, guitar player.
0: Yeah, we'll definitely Um, talk about Ben in a while, but just for people who maybe don't know much about it, just want to give a bit of an explanation for how the song publishing works, because I think it's, yeah, for a lot of younger artists here, it's not, because it's not as big an industry here, it's kind of gets overlooked in a lot of their education or their knowledge.
1: Well, I think that, you know, over there, as you know, I think, you know, TV creates fantasy, but to remove the fantasy, you know, people in that culture will sometimes, not so much anymore, as much as they used to, but it was a very song publishing, pitching, songwriters town when we got there. So meaning that if you, they call it an outside song. So let's just say, let's just build this around you for a minute. So let's say you were in Nashville, you were assigned songwriter to a publishing company the publisher's job would be to exploit the copyrights in the song, meaning pitch that, you know, create a really good demonstration of the song and then pitch that to all the possibilities to get it cut on a big record from an artist that's signed to a major record label. That is, that is the main focus of a publisher. Um, now so it's turned more into a boutique record town where that still goes on uh just not as much um so a lot have- of artists now write their own material or it's then getting to co-write with the artist supposed opposed to you could write with two other writers and then a clint black or a garth brooks would cut that song and make you you know a lot of money because when a song sits in the top 10 for six weeks you know you can make that songwriter could make 300 to a million dollars depending on how much airplay that song's getting, you know.
0: And has it got affected by, yeah? You know, back in you know, our day, mate, when you had the albums or CDs, if you got your song on a, you know, a Rick Springfield album, it didn't have yeah. to be the hit single, but you know you would make money because the album would sell. Has that changed a yes. lot like now with the streaming game where, you know. Yeah.
1: yeah. Well, to me it's become, and you notice it more than, you know, reverting back to your, my normal life as a record maker, most artists now come to producers and want, it's a singles game. So, you know, you're doing, they're doing a lot more singles and they're putting a lot more singles out a lot quicker than they ever used to. And then eventually it becomes an album on on that platform. But um, I
0: I hope it goes around, like the cycle goes around to like a, a song collection again, because I just remember how cool it was when I was watching a thing the other night, Paul McCartney live with Wings. And, you know, it obviously wasn't his highlight compared to the Beatles, but I remember when Venus and Oz came Well Me too. I loved that album. And I I, studied everything written in it. And Jackson Brown's Running On Empty was probably my favourite album of all time. And I knew every linear note on it. And I just loved just going on that journey. And it wasn't just about that song or that hit. It was the whole thing of the collection.
1: You just hit on Jackson Brown for a second. You know, Jackson said on that documentary that's, you know, available to the public, um, and, you know, I like to still call them records because yeah. they're, a, they're because it's a record of events. And I thought he said it the best. That is so true because, you know, you being a songwriter, when I go back to the time when you and I collaborated on uh, Four Poet Steps or, you know, Songs from the Fourth Floor, you were writing, you are like Bernard Fanning calls it a purple patch. You know, you'll write because you're excited to write, because you're writing for a record. And all those songs are what's happening in your existence at that point in time.